This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. I'm Ann Romer, and welcome to The Feed, York Region's longest-running radio news magazine. Coming up on the show, Vaughn's fire chief on the rash of deadly blazes, Canada's oldest indigenous theater company, and Unionville's award-winning author. But we begin with a decline in charitable donations. So according to a recent Ipsos poll, 24% of Canadians expect they'll need to access charitable services to meet essential needs within the next six months. Almost half are under the age of 35. 69% say this is the first year they've ever had to depend on charity for support. So as part of this equation, are donations keeping pace or is the demand outweighing the supply? Here to help us make sense, dollars and cents of all of this is world-renowned financial expert and newly minted ambassador for Canada Helps, Patty Lovett-Reed. Oh, I'm so happy to have you on the show, Patty. Thank you. Thank you, Anne, for having me. It's great to talk to you about this. Well, congratulations on the position, Ambassador for Canada Helps. Tell me what that entails. You know, it's really, you know, when I often talk about personal finance, I talk about it in the context of a three-legged stool. I know it sounds kind of bizarre, but I often talk about saving money, spending money, but an important component is also to give money when you can't. If you can't, you can give of yourself, but what I find is when one of those legs is broken or out of balance, um, things topple over, and so I, they reached out to me and said, oh, we don't want you to do anything that you're not comfortable with, but would you be you know, in a position to talk about giving back. And I said, absolutely, I would. I think that's great. And they're they're so lucky to have you. And what a perfect position for someone like you. You're just an expert, but you're also a compassionate individual. So let's talk about this issue, the, the balancing act. So we've got more people accessing charitable services and essential services. What's the problem? What's fueling that? Well, I think when you look at the economy, it's fascinating to me that Recent surveys have indicated that 82% of Canadians think we're in a recession. Uh, but technically, Anne, when you look at what dictates what an actual recession is, um, we're not there. The growth that we have seen in Canada, though, has really been driven by immigration. So when households say, I feel like we're in a recession, it's because we still have high inflation. We're paying a lot at the grocery store, a lot for gas, a lot for electricity, um, rent, whether or not it's a mortgage or it's an actual rental. It, it's really tough, and some Canadians are living very close to the margin right now, more so than we've seen in a long time. And you just highlighted one of the most um, outstanding stats to me that. You know, 24% are going to use an essential services, and of that 24%, 69% are doing so for the first time yeah. in the past year. Yeah, that's tough. It is tough. It's really tough. And then to the other side of your question, Anne, donations in 2023 came in only 1% higher than in 2022. Interesting. Uh, but given the demands that we know are there from individuals, charities are having a hard time. They're not growing at the pace. And so I, I will tell you, I asked Canada Helps, I said, well, who benefits and who doesn't here? And they came back and they said, well, people will stick with often if uh, their values are aligned to 
a health organization or a health cause. What tends to suffer are the smaller charities and charities, for example, in the arts, where people say maybe that's a little more, excuse me, discretionary. Interesting. Very, very interesting. And here's the bottom line. More people are accessing charitable services. What are the services that they are accessing right now? I think basically everything is base, uh, essential, such as food and clothing and shelter, that sort of thing. Uh, and, you know, I know that, you know, you can't respond to every request that comes your way to give. It's not realistic. And needs are going to change. I can tell you, Anne, on a very personal note, our one-year-old granddaughter was diagnosed about six months ago with hepatoblastoma, which is liver cancer. Oh, dear. And she was in Sick Kids Hospital and six rounds of chemo. She also had surgery. And she's cancer-free at the ripe old age of one. Hallelujah. (laughs) Right? But, you know, all of a sudden I said to my husband, okay, Campfire Circle supports the hospital. This is a charity that I'd like to see our granddaughter participate in. It allows kids who have had cancer or serious illness to go to camp and be just like any other kid. I want to support sick kids this year because they supported our family. I'm only highlighting that because what happened in our household, Anne, could happen in any household. And so when you're deciding, because you can't give to everyone, you'll say, what matters to me? Where are my values aligned? What charities support it? Do I want to support someone in my own backyard? Or do I want to do things on a more global basis? And of course, from a geopolitical perspective, we know a lot of people want to give back right now. So it really, you know, you need to know the charity. And when I decided to go on with uh, Canada Helps as an ambassador, I said, okay, you represent 86,000 charities. Like, how do you qualify? And they said, if you file a return with CRA, we know you're qualified. Hmm. And some of the smaller charities, they can't afford all the administration, the tax receipts, that sort of thing, which is why they go through this organization. And can we talk about that aspect of it? So we take away the sentimental part of all of this conversation mm-hmm. and we talk about the, the logistical part. So are, do you still get a tax receipt if you donate to a registered charity? And how does that, <laughs> how does that help you with your income tax? That's right. Okay, so Canadians, you know, they I will tell you the number one reason for making a charitable donation isn't typically the tax receipt. Oh, come on, I'm a personal finance person, <laughs> and you know what? It does matter. So people, Canadians want to make the most of their charitable tax credits. They can get as much as 49% back through charity tax deductions, federal and provincial tax credits. And so let's break it down in dollars. Uh, you do a $1,000 donation. Depending on the province, you could get as much back in a tax credit as $494. Hmm. Uh, you don't have to claim all your donations in the year they're made. When you donate over $200, you're automatically eligible to carry them forward and, you know, do them on your next tax return. And you can also qualify for maybe a larger tax deduction down the road. Sometimes it makes sense. You can pool your charitable donations as a family. Small amounts add up. And let me tell you, charities are quite happy with monthly giving. They're happy with when you do a fundraiser event. I'm doing a run 
and I'm collecting money. It may not be a lot, but who knows? Um, and I'll donate it. Every little bit helps. Absolutely. And so let's all talk about this part of it as well. Keeping pace, the donations. And you mentioned last year uh, uh-huh. that, I mean, it's on paper, it sounds as if donations are, are keeping pace with, with the need. How do you encourage people to to make a donation and whatever amount that would be? And this is now we're talking about 2024. How, With all of the difficulties we're having financially and with a kind of a bleak outlook at this stage, uh, how do we encourage people to, to make a donation and why? Well, I can tell you that the number of Canadians that gave uh, in 2023, to your point, declined 7%. Yeah. So... The number, the dollars are very comparable, maybe 1% higher, but the actual number down. And and I get it. Households that are living close to the margin, they're not going to be able to. And this is where I say it's okay to give of yourself, to offer up your own personal services. Um, Small amounts can go a long way. Some people will give charity gift cards. What I, what I found, though, is that there are more Canadians that could help than sometimes do help. And it may be just a lack of awareness. In some cases, people say, I don't really feel that strongly towards a particular cause. And then something hits home. Um, others will say, I'm going to give to the hospital in our community because while I haven't needed it personally, I know how much it does. And that comes through awareness. So, um, you know, I think, I think it's about talking about it. I think it's about doing discussions like this that might facilitate a conversation at home where someone says, you know what, what if we only gave $50 and we, you know, small amounts can lead to big amounts and that can lead to change. And are you concerned about almost half that had been polled by Ipsos are saying or it's being realized that they are under the age of 35 that's kind of concerning i mean these are these people at that age under 35 they're our future and they are needing yeah, a, a charitable uh, services essential services and they're they're having difficulty financially and they're so young yeah i i do think that that is of concern there's no question there are many out there as well that are very concerned about the housing market or they may have just gotten in at the peak of the housing market. Um, The benefit, quite possibly, and it's a strange way to look at it, is that there will be a massive transfer of wealth from those who are 35, their parents. And I think this is where philanthropy as a family can go a long way, talking about it, what do, you know, their parents intend to do with the money that they may need down the road and and how would they like that allocated. It's getting the family on side so that it may go on for generations after. It often comes down to communication, but I do recognize that there are some that they simply can't, but that means they can't right now. It doesn't mean they won't in the future. How important are charities to the fabric of this nation? Oh, huge. You you know, when you think about government transfers, uh, support from the government, uh, we have seen that dwindle. And yet we've seen communities, um, interest groups, different charities in terms of research, that sort of thing. So much needs to be done. We continue to grow. We continue to move forward. But that takes money. 
And so, yeah, I think it's huge, but the transfers from the government, not what they once were. If people go to Canada Help's website, what will they find? What inspiration will they find? You know what? I think what they'll find is that it's an online donation and fundraising platform. Uh, You can see what it will cost you. You can see the charities that they're aligned with. You could set up something on an ongoing basis or a one-off basis, and it allows you to explore. If you're uncertain about, you know, I don't want to give to the big charities. I want to help something on a much smaller scale. You may not even be aware of it, but 86,000 charities, there are many, many to Hmm. choose from. (laughs) You know, i got to tell you, you are a great ambassador for Canada Helps. You have inspired and uh, and reached beyond the the scope of just, you know, make a donation. You've, You've made cents and dollars and cents of all of this. May I also say... We are so happy here at 105.9 The Region to know that your grandbaby is, oh. is okay, that she is cancer-free. Oh, my gosh. We sure will take it. She's yeah. through that round of chemo, and the yeah. levels are very, very good. Oh. So thank you. Well, and thank you. And, and your personal story about why you decided to support sick kids, I mean, that means so much. And I know a lot of people, it will resonate with them. Patty Lovett-Reed, thank you so much for being our guest on The Feed. Thanks, Anne. I hope we'll chat again. Definitely. Thank you. Students are back in the classroom after the holiday break, but according to the Principal's Council, staffing shortages are impacting learning. Jim Lang now with that story. It's 2024. Uh, Teachers, principals, vice principals, administrators are back to the grind, and they are dealing with unbelievable pressure to perform each and every week because of staff shortages all around schools in Ontario. To talk more about it, thrilled to be joined by the president of the Ontario Principals Council, Ralph Nigro. Ralph, how are you? I'm well today. How are you, Jim? Uh, Good. As you join us in the feed to talk about this, uh, there was a quote that stood out that really shocked me as a you know parent and someone who's lived in Ontario for many years. Our principals and vice principals are run off their feet each and every day. Um, th- as you say, this is not only a problem that impacts schools, but the boards, and it have to be the kids and the the mental and physical well being of the principals and vice principals. It's got to be in doubt when they're working under this kind of pressure every day. Oh, absolutely, and and it's been a, a a situation that's gone on for a number of years now, and it's really starting to take its toll from a workload and from a stress perspective on all of our school leaders across the province. I mean, typically, on a daily basis, our our principals and vice principals they are run off their feet, and then at night during their personal and family time, um, they start planning for the next day. They start checking dispatch systems to see how many staff are going to be away and and how many uh, jobs are uncovered, and then they have to start developing a plan late at night. Are they going to cancel music or phys ed? Are they going to combine classes? Will principals and vice principals have to cover some classes that day? That's their job each and every day and, and has been pretty much since the height of COVID. Ralph, I, I mean, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I always think of a principal and vice principal takes a certain personal ownership to their respective school that they work with. And it's not just a bunch of kids, it's their kids and their classrooms and their teachers that they worry about every day they go to work. Oh, absolutely. I think the primary um, responsibility of principals and all school leaders is to ensure safety and to ensure a first-class curriculum that's delivered every day 
And when you're not fully staffed, those things are in peril. Uh, one of my wife's girlfriends is an educational assistant, and I, I heard some stories, Ralph, and I was quite shocked at uh, what they go through every day. And m- among the shortages are these invaluable people who work as educational assistants and substitute teachers in the schools in Ontario. Without them, I, I don't know where the schools would be. Oh, absolutely. You know, our, our educational assistants are very important partners in education. They work with some of our most uh, vulnerable and and medically fragile students and they are needed there each and every day to uh, establish relationships with students and to support them through the learning process and to develop trust with these students when they're not there um, the the impact that it has on our students is is very very concerning Speaking with President Ralph Nigro, the Ontario Principals Council, representing over 5,400 principals and vice principals uh, throughout the province and schools. And Ralph, if I could wave a magic wand and, and give schools in Ontario more money and support, it, realistically, how long would it take them to get up the speed to help what are these overstressed VPs and principals in schools in Ontario? Well, I, you know, I, you know, unfortunately, there isn't a magic wand. Um, you know, we've made a number of recommendations um, to the ministry and to school boards um, that we think are, are actionable, and and we think that you know we need to start today to to implement some of the recommendations. There's been a lot of talk, but the situation with staff shortages hasn't gotten any better. In fact, we have data from our principals across the province who tell us that the situation this year is as bad or worse than it was last year. How did we get to this point? Well, you know, there are, there are, there are a number of factors. I mean, you know, um, I, um, there have been, back in the late 80s and early 90s, we hired tens of thousands of teachers across the province. That, that whole group of teachers is now at a point where they are eligible to retire. Uh, teachers are not staying past their retirement date for the most part. Uh, We've seen data from the Ontario College of Teachers that tells us that a lot of new teachers are leaving the profession or not even going into the profession at all. Then we factor in the the issue around teacher certification programs. The provincial government of the day about 10 years ago changed the certification program from a one to two year program and cut the number of applicants accepted into the program. So it really created this perfect storm. Is there any way to revert it back to one year to streamline it and expedite getting more teachers and more educational assistants into the system? Well, we we think so. With the teachers in particular, we have been very adamant that the program should go back to a one-year certification program. It was one year for, for decades, and we think that it worked well, and we think that the current climate um, necessitates moving back to, to a one-year program. The situation with the educational assistance is a little different. We also uh, have a number who have been in the profession for a number of years and are retiring. And quite frankly, uh, the EA positions are not high-paying jobs when you consider the fact that most of them are 30-hour work weeks and they're 10-month employees. So mm-hmm. when you factor in um, you know, cost of housing in the GTA or even outside of the GTA when you factor in travel costs and food costs, um, the wages that they're earning, we don't think right now are at a level that uh, where they would be considered a living wage. Yet through all of this, though, there are so many individuals in the education system, Ralph, who 
who fight through it for the good of the kids and the good of schools. And, you know, as someone who lives in Ontario, that makes me feel good that they're, they're trying to make a difference every day from the principals and vice principals all the way down to all the levels of people in these schools. Well, listen, anyone who works in the education system has chosen that vocation because they love working with children. And, you know, they do the best to make it work. Our school leaders, they have been doing everything they can uh, to make it work, but it is having a, a detrimental impact on their well-being. Uh, our internal data shows that um, long-term disability claims among principals and vice principals have increased almost 600% since the beginning of January 2020. Is that strictly COVID or just strictly the strain of a lack of resources? I think it's everything. It's certainly stress-related and, and any other medical uh, conditions that are related to the stress of, of having to uh, struggle with managing staff shortages and ensuring that everybody's kept safe in their school buildings on a daily basis. Do you get the kind of, I guess when you sit down and talk to uh, Stephen Lecce and the ministry and his individuals and his people and explain the plight of the principals, the plight of the schools, are you getting the kind of feedback that you think is, is needed and wanted and necessary in this kind of situation? I mean, we've had a number of discussions. Um, some of them have been positive. And, you know, the ministry has made a number of announcements about increased funding for teachers and other support staff positions. Um, but quite frankly, to date, we haven't seen that make much of a difference, uh, as reported by our principals and vice principals across the province. Hmm. Ralph, an absolute pleasure. Ralph Nigro is the president of the Ontario Principals Council, shining a spotlight much needed for all of us on the severe shortages for uh, schools all across Ontario. Thank you for joining us in the feed, and thank you for trying to make schools a better place in the province. Thanks so much, Jim, and enjoy, enjoy the snow. <laughs> yeah, thanks. After the break, Vaughn's Fire Chief with reminders to keep you and your family safe. That's next on the feed. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. Fatal house fires. For whatever reason, the numbers seem to go up at this time of the year. The most recent, just a week ago in Thornhill, two people lost their lives in that fire. Could it have been prevented? Authorities are still investigating. Vaughn Fire and Rescue Fire Chief Andrew Zavanitas joins us with a straightforward review of fire safety, something that could save your life. Welcome to the feed, Chief. Good to have you with us. Uh, let's let's start with the most difficult part of this interview, and that is an update on the Thornhill fatal fire just a week ago. Absolutely. A, a very tragic incident uh, in our city last Saturday night. Um, the Ontario Fire Marshal has wrapped up their investigation at this time, and they've left the scene. They've turned it over to the, the homeowner and the insurance company. Um, it'll be some time before they can get us a cause um, they're going to be very diligent. They're going to look at all factors, uh, but at this time it remains under investigation, but they have cleared the scene. Can you tell me how it is that people die in fires? What happens? We know that the most common cause of someone perishing in a fire is that they were not alerted to that 
to that uh, to that emergency. And that brings me to the, the the most important point is having a working smoke alarm and carbon monoxide detector in your home will buy you precious time to evacuate that house because you literally have seconds to be overcome by smoke and gas. So if you can get a pre-alert, um, you're going to buy yourself the one thing the fire department and the first responders can't give you, and that is time. Uh, not only is it the law, but it's incredibly careless not to have a smoke alarm or a functioning carbon monoxide detector in your home. If you're a landlord, it is the law that you have them in your home, and I cannot stress that enough. Getting that pre-alert will buy you that time and save your life. Are there other pieces of equipment that you recommend that may not be mandatory, but that could help to save a life or at least to alert? Um, certainly a fire extinguisher, and not only having a, a, a small two-pound uh, chemical extinguisher in your home, but knowing where it is in an emergency. And we certainly don't recommend that you, you tackle or battle uh, a fully involved fire that's beyond your capability, but if you have a small fire extinguisher or you know how to knock down a small stovetop fire, that is certainly going to buy you time as well. Um, and having an escape plan and knowing ahead of time um, that your smoke alarms work, you have a fire extinguisher and you have a home escape plan, these things are all going to compile to help you survive that incident. So let's talk about that emergency escape plan. How do you go about doing that and should this be a family affair? Should this be, be something that is discussed with the entire family? That is uh, absolutely, and that, that is something that should be discussed with your family, especially if you have people who are uh, uh, d- disabled or have uh, mobility issues or you have children. Again, in an emergency, it's not the time to start wondering or hoping you had a plan. You have to have talked about it ahead of time and practiced it. Fire Prevention Week every year in October is the best time to do that. Get your family together. Even do it over a family meal and say, hey, if we had a, a fire and we had to leave the house, where are we going to meet? Make sure your kids can get out of their bedrooms through a secondary exit. Make mm. sure you know where your family is going to be. So when the fire department shows up and they say, is everybody out? You can say, we're all right here. We're all accounted for. And hearing, hearing that from homeowners and hearing smoke alarms sounding in the background is music to a fire captain's ears when he gets there and you say, everybody's out. And they're safe because we had a working smoke alarm. That, that's the way it should happen. Ideally, you're taking precautions before that to prevent a fire as well. I've got to ask you, and you've just touched on this, when fire arrives at the scene, what, what's the procedure? How is everything put together in terms of, of you know, fighting the fire, knowing that people are out, knowing that people are in? What's the first step? So the first arriving officer will conduct what's called a size up and they're basically going to look at the property that they've arrived to and they're going to decide what action they need to take. Are they going to be aggressive and offensive or are they going to be defensive? It's going to be based on a whole, a whole bunch of factors they take into consideration, time of day, type of unit, how many people, information they're getting on arrival, what fire conditions are showing. They're going to assess all that in the first 30 to 60 seconds. They're going to formulate their game plan. And we say the first five minutes is worse than the next five hours because you want a solid tactical approach to these things when you get there. So, you know, typically a, a small pot on the stove that's boiled over and caused a little bit of fire versus uh, the incident we had last Saturday, they require different resources and a different sort of attack. And how is it that it can be prevented from spreading? You know, often fires are in townhouses or in homes that are very close to one another. How do you go about preventing the spread of the fire? 
So the one thing you can do to help us uh, with that is when you leave, close the door. Hmm. That'll stop the fire from getting oxygen. And we recommend anytime you leave a house where there's smoke or fire, close the door when you leave and do not go back in. The action we will take will be to try and confine it to what we call the area of origin. So we'll try to get to that area, apply water to it, knock it down, and certainly protecting property on either side of the fire unit is, is a concern as well. Our main concern is life safety. We're going to try and uh, make sure everybody's out, and then we're going to protect property after the life safety issues are handled. And and every property is going to be a little bit different. The attack and the approach will be a little bit different for each. Uh, but uh, the, the template the officers use is, is universal, and they practice it, and they practice it, and they practice mm-hmm. it. And like I said, the, the, mute, the, the best thing you can hear when you arrive on scene is, my family's all out. We're all right here. We're all accounted for. There's no one else home. That now switches my priority to... I, I, I can just put water on this and put it out. Yeah. We cannot underestimate the power of fire, can we? Absolutely not. If it's, if it's already involved, do not try and stay in that home. Get out, call 911, close the door when you leave, make sure everybody's out, and go to a neighbor's home, go to your meeting place, account for everyone in your property. And if, if you have questions or you want answers, vaughn.ca backslash fire is a great resource. We would like all our citizens and residents to check that out. We have a number of programs um, that, that we run, and incidentally, after a fire occurs on your street, you might see the firefighters there the next day. We run a program called After the Heat, where we, starting at the fire unit, we work out 20 houses in each direction, and we say, there was an incident on your street. We'd like to come in and test your smoke alarms. Isn't Just while it's top of mind on everybody, yep. everybody's mind, we want to get in there and make sure in that proximity... We, we have working smoke alarms. And we should probably expand on the Alarm for Life program as well. Absolutely. That's a program we run every year, and our goal is, is to get into every single home in the city of Vaughan and test your smoke alarm. So our firefighters in each district will go out typically August through October, and we'll, we'll do a door knock, and we're going to ask if we can come in and test your smoke alarm, make sure it's functioning. And i got to tell you, Anne, I'm shocked at how many people either have a battery out of their smoke alarm or just don't have a working one. Uh, Like I said, it's deeply troubling as a fire chief to see people not taking the time and the small investment in something that can save your life to give you that pre-indication. So our Alarm for Life program runs annually and we get into about 6,000 houses a year and our goal is every five or six years to have been in every single home. Obviously we can't get into everyone if we get turned away or if there's nobody home, but that's our goal. And if you need help, putting a smoke alarm up, or you have questions, we're here to help. You and the firefighters, and really this is a universal thing, but I'm going to focus on Vaughn Fire and Rescue. You're so well-trained, as you mentioned. You train for it, you train for it, you train for it. You're human beings. When there is a fatal fire, which there was in Thornhill a week ago, how do the firefighters, how do you assimilate this information? How do you move forward past what is just devastating, I'm sure, for the firefighters. Absolutely. It's a complete tragedy that that happens anywhere, but the reality is in Ontario it's happening more than we would like. And the simple fact is people aren't protecting themselves, so now responders have to go and and, and deal with the aftermath. It's uh, it's something I don't want to say you'll ever grow accustomed to, but it's something you learn to deal with. Uh, We have all kinds of resilience programs, peer support programs, um, when people want to uh, talk about what, an incident that they've been to, we offer decompression time for those, those staff members. 
and our, our family assistance programs are very, very well uh, spoken of as well. So uh, I, I guess the point I'm trying to make is to say you would be desensitized to that or you, you get used to it, um, I don't know if that would be a fair statement, but mm-hmm. it's part of your job and you're there with a the team and you process that information as a team, most of those incidents are not your fault. They're just your problem to deal with for that, for that time frame. And you want to leave that incident knowing you did everything you could or gave that person every chance you could to survive. And to your point, our, our firefighters are some of the best trained in the world, and I put them up against anybody because they drill, they practice. Uh, when there's not a fire and you see a fire station, they're not just... They're not just sitting in there practicing and training. So we're, we're well-prepared and well-positioned to tackle any emergency that comes our way. What's your strongest message in this interview right now, Chief? If you are hearing my voice, go right now and test your smoke alarms in your house. You're required to have one on every level of your home and a working CO alarm. If you are a landlord, you are responsible legally to make sure there are functioning smoke alarms in your apartments and on your house. Please do that right now. Thank you, Vaughn Fire Chief Zavanitas. Thank you for the information and thank you for your passion for people and for knocking down fires and keeping everybody safe. It, it really rang true in this interview. Thank you. My pleasure. Anytime, man. Coming up, taking the stage with the Native Earth Performing Arts Company. That story is after the break on the feed. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. Our next story takes us to the stage of the Native Earth Performing Arts. Shaliza Backus with the Artistic Director. Pursuing a career in the arts isn't always the easiest thing to do, but with perseverance and hard work, anything is possible. And that's exactly what the story of our next guest teaches us. Allow me to introduce you to actor, Seneca alum, and the recently announced interim artistic director of Native Earth Performing Arts, which, by the way, is Canada's oldest professional Indigenous theatre company, Joelle Peters. Welcome to the feed. Thank you so much. Joelle, you are of Anishinaabe background, so can you tell us a little bit how it was for you growing up and how you knew you wanted to pursue a career in the arts? Yeah, so I grew up in southwestern Ontario, um, the Kedronong Territory, Walpole Island First Nation, and there honestly wasn't a lot of opportunity to perform or act. I was kind of latching onto any kind of little opportunity that came up, whether it was the like drama class at school, whether it was like little acting classes on weekends. And so by the time post-secondary came along or like, you know, where do you want to go? I knew I had to go somewhere bigger. I knew I had to leave my community. And it was challenging, you know, leaving everything that you knew behind, but it felt really important and it felt like I would really regret it if I didn't leave. So looking at different programs. Uh, Seneca was the one that really stood out to me. So went there, got some training in on-camera classes and for film and TV. Didn't really go that way, (laughs) but here I am. I'm actually not the interim anymore. I am now the full-on artistic director at Native Earth. 
Okay, we'll just remove that interim title. Congratulations on that one. And okay, so I think this happens to a lot of us where we start off taking one path and it kind of leads us somewhere else. I feel like the experience you got in that program at Seneca still prepared you for what you're doing now. Oh, for sure. Yeah, what Seneca taught me was like a really well-rounded way of just, they taught me to work and they taught me to to go for my dreams, whether it was in writing, whether it was like they taught us about improv and clown and dance even and a bit of uh, vocal technique. So it it felt like leaving the program, I was well prepared to just go for it, which I really appreciated. It It's a shorter program working alongside professionals who are in the business. So making connections there off the top was incredible. That is incredible indeed. And can you tell us a little bit about what you do as the artistic director at Native Earth Performing Arts? Oh, it's lots of emails, but (laughs) (laughs) I'd say that's the, the less glamorous side of it. But the more engaging part is the networking and interacting with artists. And coming from the background of like being an artist myself, it's nice to blend the worlds a bit. It's nice to bring in folks that I've worked with on projects who I know are doing really, really cool things and to bring them to our stage. We've got a small black box theater in Regent Park, seats about uh, 118. And yeah, there's lots of different live performances all the time. That is amazing. And I do want to dive a little bit into a conversation about representation. So what are your thoughts about representation for Indigenous communities in this space? It's so important, especially because it hasn't always been there. Mm -hmm. I think Native Earth, in our history, we have really fought to just have a platform and have our own space for so many years. Like the, the company itself, having been around since the 80s, we didn't get our own space until 2012. And I think that really says something. So we we fight to be here. We fight to continue the work that we do and to also grow. And we're building connections with other companies. We're bringing other folks in who maybe are in a position we were in not too long ago with like, oh, where do we perform? So yeah, it's it's nice to support and uplift others at the same time. Yeah. And do you feel as though things are maybe getting better now and maybe there are more opportunities for artists and creators like yourself compared to maybe five years ago? It's absolutely shifting. It's really fascinating to watch. I I think about, yeah, when I was starting out, there definitely were not the opportunities that there are out now. I think in recent years, especially, it, it feels like Almost every theater company wanted to suddenly work with Indigenous artists, which is great. And now I think the challenge or the fun of it is like, okay, now who's continuing that work? Who's who's still gonna gonna hire us? And part of that now with being a leader in the arts community is like, yeah, keeping on others to, all right, keep doing it. <laughs> you you signed up for this, so let's let's keep going. A hundred percent. And I kind of want to backtrack a little bit, like maybe when you started, were you maybe one of the only Indigenous people in that program? And do you feel like you had to do a little bit of extra work for your voice to be heard? I think I was. I, I think I was the only Indigenous person at, at the time. Since then, they they have had a few more Indigenous folks come through the program, which is incredible. And when I started, I think times were just different. Like I was also learning about other cultures and, and, you know, there were less experienced 
folks in the program to like work with Indigenous content. So now that that's shifting, new folks coming through don't have to maybe deal with the awkwardness that I did sometimes. Like they were doing their best, but it's just, it takes that bit of learning even as uh, professors and educators. Yeah, 100%. And what advice would you have for younger people who are thinking about pursuing the arts as a career and maybe more specifically those who come from small towns like you did? I'd say reach out to me. (laughs) (laughs) I would say reach out to those who... Those arts leaders, I I think, don't be shy. Like, part of the joy for me is meeting people who are just starting out. I love to see folks in development. I love to be in their corner. I love to send folks opportunities here and there. So I think, yeah, it's just making yourself known, going to events, networking as best as you can. Part of it is your presence. 100%. And I said off the top of this interview, you know, it's not always the easiest thing to pursue this career. So what would you say have been some of the biggest roadblocks that you've overcome yourself? Hmm. Well, the last couple of years have been really challenging, not just for me, obviously for everyone. Uh, For a good chunk of it, I had to go home. I had to go back to Walpool and that's, you know, a challenge in itself. Returning back to rural life where the internet is not great, where you're missing out on opportunities or you feel like you're missing out on opportunities that others are like easily getting because they have internet. I think other challenges or roadblocks were really myself. And like when I give the advice to others about really just getting yourself out there, that's also to me because I I think I missed out on meeting folks and doing things because of my own nerves. But it's all part of the game. And I think just recognizing that earlier in an earlier stage would be beneficial to anyone. hundred percent. And speaking of which, what would you say about the importance of the arts in the community in general, not just Indigenous communities, but for the whole city? Oh, it's so important. I don't think we, we realize, we, always, we often underestimate the importance of the arts. Like art imitates life, life imitates art. It's, it's uh, corny, but it's so true. You know, Native Earth tries to make ours as um, accessible as we can. We offer different price points and there's other theater companies across the city that do as well. So we're we're really trying to get folks from different life perspectives into our spaces and we try to make it as welcoming as we can. That's exactly what we love to hear. And Joelle, if our listeners want to get some more information about you and about Native Earth, where can we go? You can go to nativeearth.ca. We've got information about our current season. We've got a show coming up in February and April. You can also buy tickets there. Amazing. Joelle Peters, Artistic Director of Native Earth Performing Arts. It is Canada's oldest professional Indigenous theatre company, and you've come such a long way. Congratulations on all your success, and we look forward to seeing you in the big leagues. (laughs) Thank you so much. We turn the page now to focus on Unionville's award-winning author, Tina Cortez, with The Lost Expedition. Douglas Smith is a three-time winner of Canada's prestigious Aurora Awards for science fiction and fantasy. The Lost Expedition is the third book in the Dream Rider saga. It is released on Monday. Douglas, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tina. It's great to be here. Could you give us a brief sort of synopsis of this series? Yeah, sure. Um, So, yeah, it's a trilogy, um, and it's really one large 
mystery, one single story that I tell over the course of the three books. Um, and each book builds on, on what went before. So when I talk to people about the series, I say, please start with book one. Um, <laughs> it's urban fantasy, uh, meaning that it's fantasy that takes place in our modern world and mostly in Toronto for the first two books. And then we move, uh, we actually move to uh, Peru in the third book. Uh, it has a very diverse cast of characters, which reflects basically Toronto's population. The tagline I have for the series is, um, at 17, Will Draycott is a superhero in his dreams and in yours. Mm-hmm. So when the series starts, we learn that uh, Will's parents, um, who were somewhat shady dealers and ancient artifacts, they disappeared in the jungles of Peru eight years ago, and uh, Will was only nine. Uh, and Will was the only survivor that was ever found from that expedition. And he returns home, but he has no memory of what happened. And he also has severe agoraphobia. He, can't not, he cannot go outside without suffering uh, intense panic attacks. But he also returns with a strange ability where he can walk in our dreams. And as he um, starts to explore dream uh, each night, he creates this persona of the dream writer, which is, you know, he's a nine-year-old kid, so he kind of creates himself as a superhero. Um, he also begins a dream journal of short comics because he's very um, artistically gifted about the character, um, and he posts them to social media, mostly just for fun. As his powers grow in dream, he starts to um, actually play a superhero. He looks into unsolved, unsolved crimes, um, he hunts for missing kids. He also searches for his missing parents because he still believes that they're alive. Uh, in the real world, over this eight years, until we, we meet Will in the start of the first book, his dream journal post uh, went viral. His dream comic uh, about this superhero that no one knows is actually real um, has made him very rich, and uh, which is pretty good because he can't go outside his house his home, so he makes his home a skyscraper in downtown Toronto, and it's got everything he needs in life. He he has floors that are museums, art galleries, um, uh, rooftop park, uh, skateboard tracks, movie theaters, etc. So he has everything he needs except the freedom where he can actually go outside. And the other character uh, in the books that we meet early in in, um, in book one is Case. She's a street kid, Will's age. And she manages uh, to survive, and she's been on the street since she was 13. She can survive on the streets because she also has a strange ability. She hears voices that warn her of uh, impending danger. So that's kind of set up for the series. It sounds great, and it sounds like it's made for young adults. Is that your target audience? I I say that I targeted it at uh, young adults, and if you look it up in Amazon or any of the retailers, you're going to find it under young adult, but it's targeted at uh, essentially cross-marketing to adults as well. I think of it, you know, I love the Harry Potter series. Um, there's a lot of young adult series that um, that adults uh, love too. So I'm, it's an intelligent young adult series, I would put it that way. How does a mature adult write a book for young adults? Where do you find your inspiration? Um, I guess I never grew up. <laughs> I, when I was writing this, I, I wanted to kind of recapture two joys I had as a, as a kid. And one, 
pretty obvious it, it, superheroes, superhero comics. The other one was I was always fascinated by uh, stories of, of lost cities. Um, you know, that something was discovered in the jungle, uh, first humans to ever encounter it again. Um, so I, I tried to put those two together and then also tell these stories in the, in the form of almost a serial where every chapter ends on a cliffhanger and um, uh, just propels the action along. How, how would you inspire those listening right now who love to write to go out and do it? Um. Well, the first thing I'd, I'd say is it's never too late to start. I started writing in my early 40s. Um, I'd recommend that, first of all, you, you cannot be a writer if you're not a voracious reader. So you need to, um, if you don't already, you need to read a lot. And then you need to start to write. And my recommendation um, is always to start with short fiction, short stories, as opposed to jumping into a novel. And the reason I give for that is, like, think of writing a 100,000-word novel uh, and compare that to writing 25,000-word short stories. In those 20 short stories, you can experiment. You can try out different things. You can try first-person, third-person point of view, present tense, past tense, uh, multiple point of view characters, and uh, another thing I did when I started was I worked across various genres, science fiction, fantasy, horror, substream, mainstream. Um, you can just try out more things in the same number of words uh, than you can in a novel. And, and most writers, when they begin, you know, if you, if you start with a 100,000-word novel, it's, it's not going to be good. It doesn't mean your first tries at short stories will be good but you're going to be able to tackle something manageable and you're going to learn more from those 20 short stories than you would from tackling a single book. Douglas, you said you started writing in your 40s and writing is a second career for you. You were an IT executive. How did you find the courage to make the switch? Um, not sure it was the... If it was the courage, it was it was more, first of all, I was doing it part-time. I didn't give up the day job, and that would be the other thing I'd recommend. Um, it, it was more, yeah, finding the time. Um, the actual impetus, I'd always wanted to start writing, and the impetus came from when I read that one of my all-time favorite um, speculative fiction writers, Roger Zelazny, who was a U.S. writer, had, had died. Um, that summer, and he, I think he was only 56, and he died from cancer. And I'm looking at that, and I'm thinking, I cannot assume I'm going to have the years to be able to, you know, actually chase this writing dream if I wait until uh, the day job is behind me. So um, that's what started. And I sat down that summer and wrote my first short story, which took far too long. Uh, I found a great little writing critique group that, that we're all still together. Um, and sold that first story. It was uh, about a year and a half, but the uh, following year I, I got my first acceptance letter on, on New Year's Eve, uh, which was a great way to end a year and start a new one. So that, that was it. I think I just finally realized that um, if you're going to chase this, you better start now. Hmm, that's a great way to start a year. Uh, now, The Lost Expedition will be released on Monday. Do you still get excited about that kind of date? Um, yes. Um, 
I'm, I think I was more sort of nervous when the first book came out, but the first two, first one won a couple of awards. The second one has been very similarly critically uh, uh, well-received. Um, so it's been gratifying to see uh, the response to the first two books. And so far, the early reviews for the third one are all uh, very, very positive. So, uh, yeah, I still get excited. Um, it's just a little different form of excitement now. How does a, a writer from Unionville, from right here in York Region, how do you make it in publishing? What's your advice? Oh, wow. We don't have enough time. Um <laughs> The first thing is you have to write. I mean, you have to, the first critical element is you have to write something that is publishable at the professional level, one that someone would want to publish. Um, The advantage of short stories is you don't need an agent. You don't need to crack into the big New York publishers. Uh, There are ever so many short fiction markets around. So with writing with short fiction, you get very immediate feedback on whether your writing has approached, uh, has reached the publishable level. So if you sell a story to a pro short fiction market, your, your writing has reached that, that level. doesn't mean your next story will be, um, but you, you at least have gotten to the point where people will pay you money to, to publish your, your writing. Um, and then after that, there's really two major tracks. Uh, one is you can chase traditional publishers and uh, try to get a deal with one of the big New York publishers. Um, Or you can take the other route, which is becoming much more popular uh, and personally is what I would recommend, is that you go uh, into an indie publishing stream. Uh, You have to do more work. Um, You have to, uh, you know, find a cover artist that you like uh, and work with them to design the the covers. You need to uh, hire the necessary editorial skills, the story level editor, the, the, the line editor. Um, and then what I've done is I've built up a, a team through my, my newsletter um, where I have beta readers who kind of supplement my, my critique group and they give me early feedback on, on what they think of the books, uh, which is so invaluable. And then I have an art team, uh, advanced reader copy team, and they get early releases of the books and in exchange for, for posting honest reviews. No guarantee they're going to like the book, but uh, it does help when a book comes up uh, out if there are already reviews on things like Goodreads or BookBub and, and um, immediately up on the retailer sites. Well, that's a a great strategy. Thank you for sharing. If our listeners want to read The Lost Expedition, where can they find it? Uh, Any major retailer. It's out on um, all three books. are out on Amazon, uh, Kobo, Barnes & Noble, uh, Apple Books, um, Google Play Books. And it's also distributed through uh, Ingram, which is the major book distributor in North America. Um, so if, if you don't find it in your bookstore or your local library, you can just mention that to them and they can, they can order it in from Ingram. The Lost Expedition comes out on Monday. Douglas Smith, a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you for your time on the feed. Thanks so much, Tina. If you missed any part of the feed, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you so much for listening.